podcastjuice.net. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Michael Dean. And of course, you're listening to the Prince Podcast. I always say this every show. I got a special show. But this is another actual, another special show. We've got a special guest joining us to help talk and decipher more about this music that we love, this Minneapolis music, some print stuff, just everything. This is going to get into a little different realm of, of radio and the music business in the game. But before we get into introducing our special guest, I got my round table of people with me again, starting with Mr. Big Sexy and Sax. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome to our guest, and uh, this is going to be a good time. All right. Also joining us is Mr. Aunt Pooh. Sir, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Trying to look, not to let the elevator take me down. Hilarious. All right. Also, we have <laughs> Mr. Q Storm. Sir, how are you? Like I said, y'all West Coast folks, y'all not hardy enough. I'm sitting here in two inches of snow. Well, that is first. <laughs> All right. Last but certainly not least, Mr. Sean Hill, who has, I don't think you've been on the, the actual Prince podcast in a minute. It's been a while. It's been a while. And it's good to be back. Uh, for those who don't know, I've been, been under the weather, but I'm, I'm doing better now and ready to get it on. All right. Now, on to our special guest. Uh, it is Mr. Kevin Fleming. Sir, how are you? Are you on the line? I'm here, and I'm well, and thank you very much, and Happy New Year to one and all. Oh, man. Happy New Year to you, sir, and thanks for joining us. Um, a little about Kevin, and I'm going to let him tell it better, but I just want to set it up to say Kevin uh, is a Minneapolis native and has an extensive career in radio, in the music business, and how we're going to tie some of this in is he also worked, I think he was a vice president at one time, of Perspective Records, which for all of my real Prince Minneapolis cats know that is the record company that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had. Um, so we want to definitely talk about that. And I, I got some questions about like mint condition and sounds mm-hmm. of blackness and things like that nature. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to get into that. But Kevin, let me, let, me, let me start here. I, I see that you are from Minneapolis. Is that right? What, what? Born and raised. Born and raised. On, on what the side? north side oh, of go. Minneapolis. Okay. And um, we have a thing in Minneapolis where we say NFL, North Side for Life. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I never heard <laughs> yes, that. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a part of the NFL, North Side for Life. Okay. That's but uh, coming up in Minneapolis was an interesting uh, experience, uh, especially as a young man, you know, uh, in high school or actually, you know, in the 70s. Okay. Uh, Minneapolis was, uh, you know, um, the great Northwest, you know, the, the, the great uh, city that many uh, African-American people didn't really know much about. There weren't very mm. many there. Right. And for those that were there, you know, you had to deal with... Um, you know, the fact that you're in a very small minority mm-hmm. and uh, while it was a very liberal place and there were opportunities, it was also very isolating. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our music really wasn't featured 
uh, was showcased. Where there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, the tours that were going on at the time really didn't come through Minneapolis a lot okay. because, of course, the population didn't support all of that. Right. So we didn't really have what you would call and traditionally know as black radio. We had very little, very little. So as a young man, um, you know, who enjoyed music, um, you know, we, we we would hang out at a record store. We'd go out and, you know, your cousins from Chicago or New York or Detroit or L.A. or wherever would tell you about these new acts. Right. And you'd be like, well, I, didn't, I don't hear them on the radio because our radio was only, you know, we only got four to six hours of radio a day because we were on an AM. We had an AM daytime station called KUXL. Mm, okay. And on KUXL, the, the DJ would come on and it was... Um, brokered time so he would buy the time come on do his thing and when he went off actually when he went off at the end of the day the station shut down to the next day so you'd only get this <laughs> four to six hours worth of music every day wow. at that time so so we were very limited in what we were exposed to and then of course you integrate into that what you are exposed to so there was a lot of rock mm-hmm. you know a lot of grand funk you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, whatever was happening at that moment, we obviously were exposed to that because that was always around us. So when you incorporate into that, you know, the things that we knew about, you know, the James Browns and the Motown sound, and, and you know, it was right at the beginning of the funk era, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and so many so many elements were coming into play at that time. All of that tended to have an Im- impact on us as young men and, wo- and women who appreciated music. Let me, let me ask you this question. So, and then, oh, and then when you add to that the fact that six months out of the year, it were snow outside. Right. So that you means you're inside, you got to do something. So that's what kind of was the um, the laboratory you might want to say that that spawned these musicians right and let me, uh, let me ask you this kevin uh, um mm-hmm. so during this time when, when did you become a now are you a musician yourself or have you any background in, no 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 okay. no i never 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 tried to play i well you know we, everybody tried to play you know when you're <laughs> 15 years old you know right. i tried to pick up a bass and thought i could do something with it but that didn't last long Okay, I got two questions so, for you. One, uh-huh. one would be, when did you become aware? And I'm curious because you're a native of uh, that area, as opposed a lot of times we we talk to the musicians, we you know we talk to Andre and people like that. But you being sort of not on the outside of seeing that camp, and I don't know if you're outside or not. But how did you become aware? When did you become aware of there's bands in my area? That are playing. Oh, well, 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 I got lots to tell you then. Okay. There's lots. You, you, you're going to be amazed by the end of this conversation. <laughs> <then>. All right. <laughs> As I said, I lived on the north side of Minneapolis. I lived right on what is uh, Plymouth Avenue, which was a main drag, and Russell. And, uh, and uh, across the street, kitty corner from my house, I can go to my front door, look across the street, kitty corner, and see Andre Simone's house. Ah. Andre Simone's mother... And my grandmother were best friends. Wow. I mean, for life. Okay. Worked together, hung out together. So our family, his family, tight. Know them all. 
Everybody. Uh, I've been at the house millions of times. They've been in my house millions of times. So it's not like I know you from across the way. I think I know you. No, I know you. Right. You know, his mama probably whooped my ass at some point in time (laughs) when I was a child. And my mama probably smacked him on his butt, you know, the whole nine. I got you. (laughs) I went to I went to grade school with Prince. Uh, we, were, we were in third grade together at, 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 uh, at John Hay uh, Elementary School. Wow. My mother knew his mother. Long story, you know, every, it's a small town in many ways, especially amongst black people. Mm-hmm. So most people knew each other, you know, in some kind of way. So we knew um, uh, um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Nelson. Um, and her family, and we knew obviously Andre Anderson and his family okay. very well. And there, you know, Morris Day was not far away, and I knew him from from school, and and uh, Gary Johnson, and okay. and Terry Lewis, and I played high school football together. And so anyway, we're all kids. You know, when we were younger, okay. we all would see each other. You know, there was community centers and basketball leagues and football leagues and all of that kind of stuff. So all these kids would, would know each other in some kind of way or seen each other or been exposed to each other in some kind of way. So knowing about bands is because, again, we did not have radio, but we all loved music. And because of that six months inside, you know, for the winter, there were a lot of guys who wanted to be musicians. Mm. So they would put together little bands and they would play and, and there was a, a summer uh, Battle of the Band series that as I came up, you know, and got, you know, into high school, uh, had gotten involved in, in as an MC. So I'm now one of the MCs for the Battle of the Bands. And one of the bands was Grand Central. Hmm. And one of the bands was Flight Time. Okay. And one of the bands was, you know, a group called The Family. Mm-hmm. And there was a band called Back to Black that uh, Sonny Thompson was in. Okay, okay. you know who, who later uh, played with Prince. Yeah. So all of these guys knew each other. All of them played. All of them, you know, shared something uh, in the process. So yeah, we were aware of everybody, you know. And there would be little dances, little you know things that you go to and you mm-hmm. hear these guys play, and you knew about them. I mean, to be honest, you know, I mean Prince. You knew Prince was going to be great. And in fact, we didn't even call him Prince. He was Skipper. Right. Well, as we were coming up, we knew him as Skipper. You know, big fro, short, <laughs> shy, but very talented. And in the third grade, I mean, I knew he was going to be something special because he just had skills that other kids didn't have. Mm-hmm. Now, I never saw when we first started hanging out, you know, that, that young, uh, the music skills because they hadn't been developed yet. But he was very good uh, at drawing. Hmm. He was excellent. And, we, and everybody at the, those days were in the comic books. Oh, wow. So we all would be trying to draw superheroes. <laughs> Interesting. And he was one of the better kids in the class that could draw superheroes. You knew that he was going to be talented at something. Wow. Never so, heard that before. That's, that's um, very interesting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So when at, at whatever time, and I don't remember the year it was uh, precisely, but he had left his home. He lived on the south side of Minneapolis and moved in with Andre Anderson mm-hmm. at his house. And Andre and they had a big house. There were a lot of kids, a big basement. 
you know, so everybody would be hanging out, and and he lived there. Now, like I said, I'm looking out my front door, kitty corner across the street, and there's Andre's house. We're hanging out together. We're all, you know, kids. Our our mothers and grandmothers and and whatnot are all best friends. So you know, they're getting together for their little nip on Saturday night and hanging out, playing cards, talking trash, whatever right, it is right. the old ladies do. You know, so the kids are always playing together. Now we're down in the basement of Andre's house. Before there's any instruments, you know, they're banging on cardboard boxes. Mm. So I'm, I, what I'm really trying to say is that being a part of that genesis, how it all began right. to see it all develop mm -hmm. was amazing. Wow. And, and it really kind of developed right before our eyes. That's interesting you know, perspective so, to be able to see it from your your, your vantage point like that. Was absolutely, there, was absolutely. There, so, so so let me go back to the part that you know where now we we're getting to high school mm -hmm. age, and there was a guy who um, and I, for the life of me I can't remember his name it was 40, 50, 45 years ago. Uh, but anyway, he had a program where some he picked some some kids at high school. I went to North High School. And um, you could come in at lunch hour and play music over the over the you know the school system while everybody was having lunch, and he chose me. So this is how my uh, introduction okay. now to radio. Right. You know, so I get to to go up, play music, give the school announcements, you know, whatever that was, shout out people, you know, have fun. That was my thing uh, at lunch hour every day. While I was in high school, what what, what inspired you so, to want to do that? Was there something that you'd heard? Uh, I'm, again, again, my friends are now gravitating toward musicianship. They're all taking the the music classes. They're all preparing themselves in that craft. My interest was not in music. It was in music, but not in the performance of music. So, I, my avenue was you know, to be the guy who presented it all. Now I'm okay. the DJ. Okay. So that was where I found myself, you know, more of the performance aspect, you know, the, the plays and the, you know, all of that kind of, uh, that's where I kind of gener uh, gravitated toward. Okay. So now I'm playing records and talking stuff and, you know, and then it got to a point where there was an opportunity to do the community news on the radio station that was the one I told you about was the daytime station. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the guy said, the guy that was the DJ and the guy that bought the time on the station, his name was uh, Thornton Jones. But on the air, he went by Pharaoh Black. <laughs> that was his name, Pharaoh Black. The fox in the box that rocks your soul, the funky, funky Pharaoh. Yes, sir. And we would sit there and listen to Pharaoh every day because he was cool. And Pharaoh brought on a dude that was at my high school that was a year older than me that was kind of like, you know, the king DJ of the school, and that was Kyle Ray. Kyle Ray, the super DJ. And Kyle would come on when Pharaoh wasn't on the air and do a show, but they would want me to come on and read the community news. Now, I've made my little name at the school, but I ain't never made my name at the radio station. So my mother, because I was like 15, 16 years old, had to drive me because I didn't have a driver's license to the radio station. She would sit in the parking lot, and I'd go in and do the community news, you know, for 10 minutes, and then we'd drive home, and she would critique me on the way home every day. Wow. And this is what I did. This was my introduction to learning about radio. 
Now, again, all my friends, the ones that I've mentioned here, they're all trying to do their music thing, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to do the DJ radio party thing. So that we're still crossing paths. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still running in the same circles. We're just doing different things. So as we, you know, graduate, you know, get older in high school and, you know, become uh, ready to, to graduate out, we're throwing parties and we're doing this, we're doing that. And then, of course, we still have that battle of the bands. So one year that, you know, or, or over the years, as those same bands that I mentioned perform in, at this uh, summer concert series, you know, um, somebody would, would win the battle somebody would lose the battle and there'd be a lot of good feelings on one side and bad feelings on another side. Well, let me tell you about these bands. <laughs> uh, flight time was tight. They had their stuff together. They were pretty good. The family was a funky band. They were, they, you know, flight time was solid. They were very good, very you know, they could do a little jazz, a little hip, I mean, a little uh, uh, funk, you know, do the RB thing, very strong. The family was a little more, you know, down in the hood, you know, hardcore, you know, R&B, James Brown kind of stuff, you know, that was, that was their thing. And then you had Grand Central, and they were a little more on the edge, you know, a little more different, you know, a little, had their... Um, you know, more of a rockish kind of approach to it. Hmm. But, you know, when you're in the hood and you're doing the, the battle of the bands, you know, people gravitate to the things that they know. Right. And they didn't really know the rock thing as well as, you know, maybe Grand Central would have liked. So Grand Central always lost. Interesting. And, and that'd be Prince and Andre and, and, and uh, um, uh, Morris. And uh, Andre's sister, Linda, was in the band, and uh, there was other folks that evade me right now. But the point is, they very rarely won, what and was they the, would be hurt. What, what was the band that Sonny was in? Sonny was in the family. He's in the family, okay. I heard that they was yeah. the ones that you didn't mess around with. Like, Oh, no, no. Sonny, son, <laughs> now, you know, God rest Prince of Soul. I love him, my brother. You know, I've known him since we were kids and I think he's probably one of the greatest musicians the world has ever seen but when we were young Sonny Thompson kicked Prince's ass yeah I heard he was the man Sonny Thompson was the baddest thing I'd ever seen whoa Sonny Prince learned from Sonny Thompson yeah and Sonny I was left handed mm -hmm. and would he could play his face off but there were there were a number of guys that came around when we were young that were excellent musicians. And Prince had to learn. And I think a part of him um, getting his butt kicked as many times as he did in that Battle of the Band scenario certainly helped shape him mm -hmm. and, and drove him to become as good and pro prolific as he eventually did. Wow. When, when, when was it, uh, so you guys are getting ready to graduate at this point, or if you have graduated. Now, I wanted to transition to see where you were at. When, when Prince gets his record deal and, and puts out his first release, where were you at? Were you, have you went to college well, at this point? Or? I had, yeah, I had, had uh, decided that, you know, the Minneapolis scene was very small. 
and either you were going to make it, you know, with that hustle you had, you know, I mean, you know, hustling um, parties or playing playing DJ in the clubs, even though you wasn't of age to be able to do it. And I was, you know, uh, sneaking in the club being the DJ, getting away with not being over 18. But at the time, I realized that um, in Minneapolis during those days, you know, for a young black man, uh, either you were going to make it as that musician or that entertainer, uh, if you didn't have, you know, the skills to be a professional athlete, mm-hmm. and the only other alternative that for many of us saw was being, uh, you know, some kind of hustler on the street. Mm-hmm. There were many pimps and players and that kind of thing going on at that time. Interesting. And you would see that, and you would be exposed to that, and you'd be affected by that. And at one point in time, I said, either I'm going to go wrong. Or I got to go right. And the the only right thing for me to do was to leave there and try to go better myself by going to college. Now, now were you... I had, had that, that little taste of radio experience. Mm-hmm. I had spent some time on a little local uh, community station that's still there today called uh, KMOJ. I had done all those things. And I said there was an opportunity for me to go uh, get a degree in communications okay. with, a, with a concentration in broadcast management. And... I left now, in 1976. 76. Let and me that ask was you right this. around the time Prince was putting together his first, his first opportunity. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? I have three sisters. Um, all younger. Younger. Oh, now, so my you sisters were the... knew, knew them, you know, um, uh, all of them. You know, it's funny, to, even to this day, I'm, my, I have a sister that lives in Phoenix, and she kind of works in the entertainment business and she sees, you know, the guys that are still touring, you know, Morris Day and, and Jerome Benton. And, you know, Jerome was my little, my little brother in school and we hung out and, and Terry was my big brother at school and we were playing football together and all of that. So to see them today, we got such a great history, you know, and, mm-hmm. and story and it's, it's always family when we are able to get together. So it's a it's a beautiful thing. All right. I, I wanted to ask you, in terms of when you left, so you were the first, or I, is it right that you were the first in your family to, to go out, you know, let me go out, go, yeah. out, go out here to college and move away? Yeah. And do that? Yeah, thing. I was. And it was, uh, it was necessary for my growth and development. It was... Um, it was time for me to do that. And it, it, in, in many ways, as much as you, you go away and you do your own thing, there was still a tie to the guys. And, right. and, the, and the reason I'm telling you like that is that I went to, to uh, Clark uh, Atlanta University, which at that time was called Clark College in Atlanta. And I studied communications. And it wasn't you know long after uh, I had left where, like I said, Prince had uh, come out with his... Uh, first project, um, and then eventually uh, ended up at Warner Brothers. Now you do know that he was had an opportunity to go to Columbia Records, mm-hmm. and Columbia wanted to sign him, but did not want to allow him to produce his own material. Right. In fact, Columbia had had off made an offer and basically wanted to put Prince with. Uh, Maurice White under his direction of Earth, Wind, and Fire, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that Prince would uh, would be signed to Columbia as a, a new artist, but the production element would be under the op- 
uh, under the guidance of Maurice White, and Prince chose not to do that. You know, he wanted to be able to do his own thing, which, you know, at that time was very rare. Right. But, you know, when you look back on it, you say, wow, you know, he really had a vision for what he wanted, you know, at a mm-hmm. time when he probably didn't know what he wanted. Yeah. But he had that vision to, to do his own thing. So, you know, kudos to him for sticking to his uh, his own beliefs and, sure. and believing in himself. Yeah, let me let me ask you this, Kevin, because I just wanted to kind of follow your journey a little bit. So when you go to Atlanta, coming from, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis, was there sort of a culture shock for you? Because, again, coming from, a, <laughs> from an area where there's very little blacks Brother. going to Atlanta, Brother. of all places, me, right? Let, let, let me let me let me give you a, a real quick story on that one. Yes, sir. I have a story specifically about that. Okay. I I went to Atlanta, had a cousin, who lived there, and she lived in Buckhead. Mm. So I guess I got to school. I came into Atlanta on a Thursday, and I wasn't able to get into my dorm room until the following Monday. So she let me stay at her house in Buckhead. Um until, you know, my dorm room was available. And I got there on Thursday. Friday, I'm, you know, she kind of, you know, told me about the neighborhood and about the area and what I should expect and all kinds of things. And the next day, she handed me a bus, a bus schedule and said, all right, you need to go, you know, discover this and figure it out and find <laughs> out. So to get to from Buckhead to, you know, Clark College at the time, you had to transfer downtown and, what it would was used to be, I don't know if it's still there today, a place called Central City Park. Mm. And that's where you'd get off the bus, get on another bus and, you know, take a short ride over to uh to the to the university. And man, you know, coming from Minneapolis, population uh well the percentage was about three percent African American. Wow. And going to Atlanta, which probably at that time was only 60 to 70 percent black, and getting on a bus in Buckhead, which is still at that time was a, a pre- predominantly white neighborhood, and you get downtown, and I got off this bus, and I swear to God, I had never seen that many black people in one place <laughs> in my entire life. And it was like, whoa. And I was like, I, I was just overwhelmed with emotion because mm. I just, I, there was a, a sensation I could not explain. And I got on that bus and I'm my, you know, my mind is just filled with all these thoughts about how, you know, how was it like to be live in a place where that many black people were? And I got off that bus at, at Clark College and I spent that day walking around that campus and I saw all those black students and people coming in to, you know, get set up for the new year and black teachers. And, and, and then of course, all the beautiful women across the street at Spelman <laughs> college. So that bubbling brown sugar. Because all of this is sitting on the same street. You right. got to understand. It's like an intersection. Right. Clark's here, Morehouse here, Spelman there, down the streets, Morris Brown. All of this is bustling with black people. And then you see all these women, and you say, I, I swear to God, I said, I'm never leaving here. <laughs> this has got to be the, the best thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> and, of course, I had a wonderful, wonderful time at college. You know, I mean, I, I, I'd love to relive that life again. But anyway, it was 
it was a cultural shock beyond cultural shock, but it was an enlightening, and it just opened my eyes to all kinds of possibilities. So it wow. was one of the greatest things of my development that I could have ever done was going to um, that black college, historically right. black college, um, at that time, uh, coming from where I had come from. Mm, I can imagine. I can imagine. What, what, when was the first opportunity uh, that you got your first, I guess, radio job? Was that the first thing you got into? Well, after after my experiences very briefly in Minneapolis, you know, mm. with, like I said, from 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 the high school experience to the the AM daytime radio station to the FM community station KMOJ, um, and then my first real, you know learning the process of real radio was happened at college. Okay. So I first started with um, uh, uh, WCLK, which is the Clark College radio station, and it was a jazz station, so I was a DJ there and, and helped in the music department. And then eventually, as time went on, I got a, a job at WIGO, which was an AM station, and W uh, W A O K, which also was the M. Now you got to remember, there were very very few urban FM stations, or black FM mm-hmm. stations, anywhere at that time. At that time. This, this is this is mid seventies, so right. they were just coming into into uh, to getting into FM at that time. FM was you know album rock that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was very little uh, R and B stations. Uh, most of the R and B stations were AM. So to have that opportunity uh, in Atlanta uh, to do WAOK and, and WIGO was great. Uh, at AOK, I was um, a weekend, um, uh, you know, announcer, and then on, AO, on IGO later, I became um, uh, seven to midnight and a music director. So that was my first opportunity to really understand. Um, operations of radio and and how to to you know be in management can, can you give us so, your uh, uh, can, can you give us your your wigo you know your lead in how you oh call man <laughs> i was i was um went by the name of special k special and k. i don't remember how we did igo you know i don't remember how we did the call letters man it's just so long ago <laughs> but the, the, what i was going to say about that is while at wigo was right after, you know, Prince had launched. Uh, I'm telling people about Prince. Of course, everything that you're hearing about Prince at that time was this androgynous, mm-hmm. you know, is he gay? Is he black? What is he? Is he some kind of freak? You know, it was all this kind of stuff that was going out because nobody was really, you know, wasn't spin control, wasn't, wasn't invented then yet. And, and for, so the, got, for, for the you, younger listeners, you there was no internet back then, mm-hmm. so it was all word of mouth. No and, internet, yeah. you know. So you get a picture, and you know you might get a story on television or something, and you you know it'd be all you know just wild. You know he was, you know, Mister Sex Crazy, and all, <laughs> you know it was just so much stuff that was out there that was, you know. Um, you get an idea and you run with it instead right. of there was no investigation into it to, to know if it was real. And I'm telling people, I know this guy. I grew up with him. He's a great musician. He's incredible, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, he's some kind of freak. <laughs> and then, you know, he, he, by the time he got to soft and wet, 
you know, and then everybody's ready to come around and say, okay, yeah, he's he's really something. But in the meantime, when when he launched the time, and get it up was out. We had a chance, and I was working with a guy named Jimmy Veal, who was a local promoter, and he booked the time to come down to Atlanta and play in some club. Okay. So it was really the first time for me to see the guys as the time mm-hmm. after you know the whole flight time thing, and you know you know the story about flight time uh, yes. and Alexander O'Neill, right? Yep. Yep. Did and, you know Alex as well? Alexander was. Alex, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Alex was supposed to be in in the, in the, the time. time. He wanted that paper. But Alex <laughs> went to the meeting and wanted the paper. Right. And kept telling Prince, "Well, you, you know, I need a car. I need a house. I need some money. You know." And, and at that time, that wasn't really what Prince was trying to hear. And it was an opportunity that he, you know, was all about. Let me get paid instead of let me have this this chance to do this, and. Uh, the uh, Prince obviously passed on Alexander being in the group and eventually put out a record. I think it was on Sheena Easton under the pen name of Alexander Nevermind. Right, right. You might want to do a little research on that. Sugar Walls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and the producer was Alexander Nevermind, and that was yep. that message to Alexander that you ain't in this group. Yep, yep. So, anyway, so when I... Saw uh, Jimmy and Terry and 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 uh, um, um, all the guys. You know, it was just amazing to see them out of that context of Minneapolis and on the road and and you know a, a, a touring band. Even though they were they were you know you know all piled up in somebody's station wagon, but still it was great to see them out like that. And and that kind of uh, just brought it all home for me. So we had always kept in in contact and, and and whatnot. And as the years went on, and I had uh, uh, done radio, and and then eventually left radio and got into the record business. Uh, after uh, finding myself in Los Angeles, um, I had come to L.A. in 1982, and with a cousin who moved out here and just said, oh, man, this is L.A. I've always wanted to be in L.A. This is great. Ended up going back to um, back to Minneapolis and then eventually really kind of started my, my professional radio career by going back to Georgia, working at another AM daytime station in Athens, Georgia. I was there for only about six months when I got an opportunity to go to a station in uh, Sumter, South Carolina, WWDM, which is still there today the big DM and it was my first real program, real programming job. And we took the station from number seven in the state to number one in the state. And, you know, sometimes with success, uh, uh, you know, some people see uh, your success as threatening. And one day the owner walked in and said, I don't think you really want to be here. I've been there about a year and a half station was doing really well. And, uh, he wa- I walked in and he fired me Wow! on the spot. And I had no idea why, but I guess he just thought, you know, either I was going to leave or I was doing something he didn't think I was supposed to be doing. And uh, I found myself out of work, and, you know, I started making a name for myself uh, with the success at that station. So I got in my car, and I drove to Atlanta, and I interviewed there, and there was nothing available. And I drove to New Orleans and interviewed there, and there was nothing there, and I drove to Houston, and 
talked to somebody and they said, well, if you can wait, you know, six months, I'll have something, you know, and I was really, you know, uh, sad and down in dumps and, and trying to figure out what was next. You know, I had just gotten uh, uh, married to my wife in Minneapolis and hmm. she was at the end of our honeymoon. She went back to Minneapolis. I went back to South Carolina and, and then I get fired. And I was out of work for about a month, and then all of a sudden I get a call from somebody, and I sent out tapes, and they said, hey, there's a job in L.A. If you want it, uh, you know, and I talked to a guy, and he said, you know what, it sounds like, you know, with your experience and, and the fact that you have a degree in communications and that all of that is impressive to me, he said, I'm going to make arrangements to have a plane ticket at the airport. You can come out today. Wow. And I got on that plane that day. I interviewed the next day. I got the job the day after that. I went back to South Carolina, sold off anything I, ha I had that I couldn't take with me. I drove across country by myself with a trailer on the back of my car, and I came to L.A. and got to L.A. in November of, of uh, 1984 and was a program director at KGFJ for five years. How old were you at this time? Um, I was 24 years old. Wow. 25. Wow. So it was a great, great experience. It was a new thing. Um, it was a challenging thing. It was um, uh, radio was, uh, you know, exciting then. There were a lot of great things going on at the time. And I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, major market program director in the country. What kind of station was this? Was, was this a black station? KJFJ was a, a AM R&B station. Okay. It was a, a, a historical station for, uh, uh, you know, it was a station that uh, Magnificent Montague was at and did the famous Burn Baby Burn, hmm. you know, for the 65 riots. You know, um, there, there are a lot of people that had come through that station were were very famous in black radio okay. um, over the years, and uh, I caught it at the at right toward the end of the era where inner city broadcasting, which owned WBLS in New York and WLIB, uh, owned the station. They also owned KBLX in San Francisco at the time. Wow! So my first national program director was Frankie Crocker. And Frankie would come to L.A., and we'd have our meeting, and he'd say, you know what, young man? You, know, you do this L.A. thing. I'm going back to New York. I don't care about it. <laughs> so, so, you know, my, my experiences with the great Frankie Crocker, probably the, the, the greatest black DJ in the history of black radio, was you do it. I don't, I don't want to hmm. do L.A. radio. So, but L.A. radio was challenging because, you know, it, it, there's so many elements to it that you have to, to consider. It's not the things that you can do with, with uh, the black um, uh, listener base, but you have to include the Hispanics. Mm. You have to cross over. You have to do gotcha. things that are outside of your norm. So it's a, it's a different market to challenge. And a lot of people have come to L.A. trying to do radio and had to learn the hard way that it's not the way, you know, you do things in Chicago or Detroit or Atlanta or somewhere else. LA is an entirely different place, and and uh, 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 Anthony knows that from from living in LA. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I was going to say, what what? How did you transition from being in radio and then getting into the music business? Well, 
you know, after five years at KGFJ and being successful uh, in it, you know, I just were looking at the business and looking at greater opportunities. And I think that I, my interest was really going from playing records to being involved in the making of music okay. and to developing artists and finding talent. So that's really where my interest started to to uh, to uh, grow. And I got a job um, as a regional promotion manager for Island Records. Okay. And Island Records uh, was owned by Chris Blackwell at the time. And Chris was a uh, British man, a, a Jamaican, British Jamaican, who um, who's most notably known for for developing and I can't really say finding and but uh certainly uh building Bob Marley mm. and U two. Those were the two big acts that he was associated with, you know, although there were many others, but those were the two biggest ones. And I got a job as a uh regional promotion person based in Los Angeles. And now what was interesting about that was I was a program director and I competed against other radio stations. There were five black radio stations in L.A. at that time. So I competed against all these guys. Now I got a job where I now have to cater to these guys. So it was a very difficult transition for me personally to go from, I'm kicking your ass on the radio today, to, hey, man, how you doing? Let's go to dinner, and will you play my record? Hmm. And that didn't last long for me. But... And it was good that it didn't last long for me because I had told my bosses that my true passion, my true interest was to do A&R. Oh, okay. And uh, what had happened is there was an opportunity at A&M Records, after I was uh, only in the job maybe six months or something like that, and somebody said, hey, you know, they're looking for an A&R guy uh, to do R&B A&R at at A&M. And I went and uh, applied for the position, and, and they were about to, uh, to you know, make a decision. And I told my bosses that, hey, you know, I'm just so, you know, for full disclosure, don't want you to be surprised, I'm, you know, trying to uh, look at an A&R opportunity. And I hadn't met the president the president of the company. He was, you know, we talked to him on conference calls and whatnot, but never had I met him. His name was Lou Malia. And Lou called me one day, and you know, and there was there was a little bit of um, uh, turmoil in our department. People were leaving, and there was transition going on and whatnot. And Lou said, "Listen, uh, I don't know you, but I hear good things about you. I know you're getting the records played. You know, people that that I talk to tell me that you're a good guy. You know, I want you to stay." He said, "What will it take for you to stay at the company?" I said, "Well." You know, and I'm saying to myself, I'm taking this A&R job over at A&M because that's what I want to do. This guy's not going to let me do A&R. He said, well, I'll, I'll let you do the A&R, but I want you to, to, you know, take a bigger role in the development of the department. And I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, 30 years old, man. I'm still a kid in this. I know people in the record business. I see what goes on in the business. But I'm like, you know, this is moving really fast and I said, okay, well, you know, take that chance. So <laughs> the funny story is, you know, I was making about 50 grand a year. Let's just say that's what it was. And I told the guy, I said, he said, well, what will it take? I said, well, I, 
I want a hundred grand and I want a fifty thousand dollar bonus. Now I say all of this to say I know he's not gonna do this. Right. So I said I'll throw out this number and then I'll go on to A and M with this job that I wanna do. And he said, Done, no problem. Next and I'm like, you know, my mouth drops. <laughs> you know, ten days later I get a check for fifty thousand dollars. Now you're thirty years old, you know, in this nineteen what are years this nineteen ninety. You know, you're sitting there, you know, looking at this money and saying to yourself, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and, and that was amazing to me, of course. Anyway, long story short, I did, did Island. Uh, first act we worked when I was there was um, a Tone Loke, mm. Wild Thing. Get out of went here. Went through that. Went through uh, Busta Moves with uh, a Young MC. Uh, wow. Worked with Will Downing, with Misha Paris, with Miles J. Okay. Um, and, you know, made a good name. And um, at some point in time, you know, Chris Blackwell was vacillating on selling the company, which he eventually went and did to uh, Polygram Records. And uh, there was an opportunity uh, to make a move uh, because it looked like things were not going to be as stable as we thought they would be at Island. And I went to work for, believe it or not, Michael Douglas, the actor. Really? Michael Douglas had a record label called Third Stone Records, which was run by Dick Rudolph. Dick Rudolph was the, it was the former husband of Minnie Ripperton and, of course, a record producer. Oh, wow. So we worked on, he had a record called Third Stone Records, and I went there as a vice president of A&R. And the first act I worked on was uh, Nona Gay, the daughter of Marvin oh, Gay. Oh, wow. Okay. Who who eventually went on to become a uh, a model and actress, but uh, that was a short-lived run as well. Uh, unfortunately, in 1991, my grandmother passed away. I was in Minneapolis for the funeral, and while there, I called Terry, and you know, flight time was rolling by then really well, and I said, you know, hey man. I'm in town. I want to come out and see you. Man, come on over. And we came over to the studio, and I was blown away by the facility. It was just amazing, you know, what they had built uh, and had gotten to by that time in Minneapolis. And basically kind of told him my story and, you know, said, you know, man, it would be a dream to come back and, and to work with you and Jimmy and, you know, help you, you know, build a label. And he said, you know, by, by chance, timing is good. Because <laughs> we're starting this perspective records, and he said we're running through A and M, uh, and we need somebody who can be in Minneapolis when we need them in Minneapolis, and in L A when we need them in L A, and to you know help build this label, and that's the opportunity that presented itself, and I became uh, vice president and general manager of Perspective Records. Wow. First act we worked with was Sounds of Blackness, which was optimistic, which we got to a number one record. Mm -hmm. And uh, their first album, The, the uh, Evolution of Gospel, uh, won a Grammy that year. The next act I worked on was uh, uh, Main Condition. And the thing about with working with Jim and Terry was that they weren't um, overly involved with the acts they would they would help them they would guide them they would shape that career but they weren't really you know um uh so involved with the making of the music that it was 
<laughs> that it was them right. and not the act. So mint condition got to be mint condition with some direction from Jimmy and Terry, as opposed to Jimmy and Terry going in doing the records. Mm-hmm. Like they they did a little more of that with Sounds of Blackness because Sounds of Blackness was more of a, a vocal ensemble than it was a band. Right. Uh, although Sounds of Blackness had its own band, but Jimmy and Terry shaped more of the music. Um, you know, in, in that uh, on that project. But we did some great things over the next three years um, at Perspective Records, uh, most notably the uh, Mo Money movie soundtrack, which featured (laughs) Janet Jackson, Luther Vandross, Mm -hmm. Karen Wheeler, uh, Johnny Gill, you know, everybody sounds black. There was so many acts on that album, and it was a big platinum record, and we were extremely successful with that. So I have... You know, wonderful stories and and experiences um, from the time that I was with uh, Perspective Records. Um, uh, you know, to to be able to um, live in L.A., commute to to uh, Minneapolis, and we spent time in New York, and we did a lot of different things that were innovative and exciting, and and you know, built a label and built a staff. And worked with um, some great people at A and M. Was there who ever, were our distributors? Was there uh, ever a chance, or is there ever a, a talk of Jimmy and Terry actually doing an album on Perspective at all? Like, like them have a group? Oh, as themselves? Yeah, like uh, some sort yeah, of group. Yeah, album. Um, yeah. There was. Uh, I forget what the name of the what they were going to call themselves. It's like the Secret or something like that, or. Yes, the secret. The Thank secret. you. I'm glad you, you you're very good at that. They were the secret. Yes, and there was talk of them doing an album. There has they've actually been talking about doing that since then. Okay. Um, but yeah, they 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 talked about doing that. But you got to remember, while all this is going on, they're still um, cranking out music for other people. Yeah, Janet was huge. At they're this still time. doing their production work. So yeah. it's it's it was it was incredible to be in the studio with um, Janet Jackson when she's in town to work and we're, st- we're working on Mint or whoever we're working on mm-hmm. and in the next room there's Janet and they're doing their thing or there's Johnny Gill or there's New Edition or there's, you know, whoever it was at the time. Uh, you know, uh, we, uh, I remember when we were doing the Mo Money soundtrack, uh, one of the most exciting things for me was actually being in studio with Janet and Luther when they did uh, The Best Things in Life are Free. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, we went to the Apollo Theater, which a lot of people don't know. The Apollo Theater has a studio inside of it. And we worked on Big Daddy Kane on a track he did for the album at the Apollo. A job ain't nothing so it, it was, uh, like I said, it was just a wonderful time to experience uh, the music business to be in the music business because mm-hmm. uh, we were getting support. We were being extremely successful with our records. You know, we were very competitive. Uh, Mint Condition, you know, battled up the charts with pretty brown eyes with uh, Prince and Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, was, so there were hits out at the time and we were making videos and and doing things. And just it was a very exciting time to be in the business. Uh, another question. Just related uh-huh. to this, because you mentioned Johnny Gill and, and New Edition, and my understanding is that Jimmy and Terry are either like executive producers producers of that New Edition movie. 
uh, that's well, they're out. they're a part of the they're producers on the movie, yes. Okay. Um, and there will be some new music coming out of that. And I know they're going to be working on Johnny again for his next project. Oh, okay. I was going to have so you seen that? There's a number that? of things that are going on with them right now. Um, have you seen you know, that movie I, yet? No, no, I have not seen the movie. I I, I, t- I talk to to uh, Terry every now and then. You know, they Jimmy and Terry have relocated flight time to Los Angeles, so um, I've been to their. Uh, they had a studio in in uh, in Santa Monica, and now they're uh, based in Calabasas. So I haven't been to the Calabasas place, but I've seen them at the place in. Uh, in Santa Monica when they had that. Okay. And there's a, there's still a lot of projects that they're involved in, a lot of different things. And they have some young writers and, and producers that are coming to the camp that uh, they're helping develop as well. All right. Let me let me ask, I want to shift the conversation a little bit. I want to get some of your expertise uh, as someone who's been in radio for, for, for a while and has been in the music industry as well. Because we're at a very interesting place where we're at now. You know, in terms of those two industries and what they mean right. to sort of, you know, uh, I want to say the totem pole of importance to to young people, because I was a consumer young guy at the time you're talking about. And music was everything. You know, that story you talked about of going to the record store. Right. That was a, a, day, right. a weekly ritual. You had to go to the record store right. you know, and these types of things and music videos and all that kind of stuff. But now uh, I wanted to ask you this, because one, you had new addition. You've worked with them. They are a band, you know, they're a black right. band. Uh, you know, I always put New Edition, Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh, I guess you could put The Roots. But there's so little of that nowadays. And I know that Mint still does their thing. They're out there touring. But I wanted to ask you, like, in your opinion, professional opinion, what, what do you think has happened with the black band? And, and when I say the black band, I'm not necessarily talking about there's always the Earth, Wind, and Fires and, you know, some of the legacy acts that tour. But I'm talking about new, young talent on the cusp, that guiding the culture, you know, being the forebears. Well, why, why don't we have that anymore? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with radio. Okay. And the problem with the radio, as I see it, has also been um, the fact that it's now... Um, corporate um, owned mm-hmm. um, clear channels and- so when you when you have corporate owned and um, you know when you have uh, companies and I don't want to single out <laughs> um, uh, iHeart or uh, Radio One or Cumulus but you know they're, they're, they make up the bulk of the companies that own black radio stations. And what they do is they want to run these stations like franchises. Mm. So when they do that, you know, we're talking about um, corporate uh, run or corporate uh, managed playlists. So you don't get the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the least common denominator. It's the easiest way to manage multiple numbers of stations is by everybody doing the same thing. It's the mm-hmm. menu is the same. The playlist is the same. Everything is the same. And, and we don't have the ability to walk into a situation and really uh, showcase our programming talents. You know, where, we're, where once black radio was a place where you go to f- discover new artists. Right. 
new music, you know, up and coming kind of things. And no longer is that now you want to play safe and, and, and it, you know, it's, it's chart driven, hit driven, um, you know, um, uh, the least uh, uh, path path of least resistance kind of stuff. So you don't get the um, variety. You don't get the diversity that you once got. So bands kind of got caught up in, uh, you know, uh, the record companies are not developing bands because they're not putting money into artist development. A band costs more than an individual, mm. and you can go in the studio and create the band sound without having the band. Mm. So there's just ways in which you can get around doing that. Now, you see somebody like a, um, a Bruno Mars today mm-hmm. bringing that all back. You yeah. know, I mean, if you listen to his music, it sounds like the 80s again. Yeah, his new album, is that's that's my joint right there. <laughs> Oh, it's the bomb. It's the bomb. But you're seeing that, you know, we we went through a period with the record companies where they were really trying to maximize the dollars mm-hmm. and minimize the expense. And if that be the case, then that means they want to get all they can out of product, but not necessarily invest in um, uh, development. Now, is that a particular genre sort of thing because and and i'm asking this in the sense of i still see the white bands all day you know well then then you've answered your own question (laughs) okay you know yeah it is it is a thing where it's it's uh you know they minimize and marginalize black music so we don't get the benefit of all that what we're supposed to do is deliver hits okay not develop talent mm. where on their side they want to develop talent mm. that eventually will deliver hits we got to come with a hit out the box out the gate. or we ain't gonna be there interesting i mean if you just look at you know what you're saying just take a, a look at it from that that lens mm-hmm. that all we're really doing there is to, is is providing songs Hmm. Okay. So those that do break out into superstar acts pretty much do it on their own. You know, Beyonce doesn't depend on her record label to do what she does. Jay-Z, you know, can pretty, pretty much decide what he's going to do. Kanye, all of these superstars, you know, are really not doing it um, uh, with the... Uh, support of the record label. Right. But the record label's focused on hit songs and not hit acts. That's why you see, you know, uh, you, we, our emphasis is no longer on albums. You know, I uh, uh, um, Apple did away with that when they started selling singles. You know? I mean, notice, an album comes out because... You don't. We're not getting CDs, or not buying CDs, or we're in the download uh, business. You don't see credits anymore. <laughs> you don't know who plays on what. Right. You know. You don't know who produces what. So there's all kinds of things that we don't. That we, we that affect us. Let me ask you. Do you, you know? in your opinion, do you think? Uh, when I say us, I'm talking about the you know black people uh, that love music. 
do we still value it the same, in your opinion? I think we do. I think we consume it differently. You know, I mean, our thing was, man, you know, we're uh, a tact- was it t- tactical pe- person. We like to touch things. <laughs> yes. We would go spend time in the record store and flip through the bins. Right. You know, you know, you know. You, you still probably got some records around your house somewhere. Mm-hmm. But that that was something that was important to us. So reading the liner notes and seeing the pictures and all of that was a part of that process. You know, now our music is more disposable than ever. Now, to a certain extent, we didn't get taught the way to consume music through the computer. Who was there to do that? You got to pull out a credit card? That wasn't really our thing. You know, we had that $15, we could go down to the store and buy the album. Right. Now we, it's a whole new ball game. And we're still late to that game, unfortunately, from a technical standpoint. Not, not the young people. The young people will get that. It's that 25 to 54 that's still reluctant. Yeah, I almost you feel know? like they sort of written off that. Like, it was like, well, you're not well, on board but, with it. But, but, but we still love the artists. Okay, right. Yeah. Frankie Beverly still sells out arenas. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Hey, ain't had a record in 25 years. So you have to think about how we consume this now. What's important to us? We will go see R. Kelly. Might not buy his new album, but we'll still go see him. So our our love for music has not diminished. Mm -hmm. The way we consume the music has changed. You know, this whole thing about the streaming now, you know, I mean, really it is in many ways a way in which corporations can take advantage of our uh, intellectual content and not pay for it or pay uh, pennies, the pennies on the dollar. Right. You know, yeah. So it's all, an it's artist a, making money on records is really a thing of the past. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like now all of it is based. It's just uh, it's something to help Google or I'm just naming companies to sort of get their foot in the door. Your echoes your ecosystem like it's almost like it's a lost leader almost like yeah well it, yeah it's a lost leader in a sense but it's also um um having that content brings eyeballs and ears and whatnot and then you're trying to sell them goods right that's what i'm saying so they want to so, bring you, you into know, their amazon system. being amazon being in the music business is yeah it's 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 retail but it's also don't forget to go check out amazon prime and uh, exactly. and all the other services that we offer right you yeah. know, uh, same with Apple and, and everybody else. Everybody has something else to sell. And, and, and surrounded with all of that music is advertising. Mm-hmm. So if I can get you to subscribe to my service for $5 a month, but I can have you in my network and sell all this other stuff to you, you know, that may be to my advantage. Right, right. Well, so the emphasis is less on the way, you know, the music uh, but the fact that I have you, you know, uh, as a, a part of my consumer base. Right. Yeah. The, you know, buying up all of these libraries or having access to all this libraries of content. Come on in here so you can listen to it. But what what do you think that 
what would your advice be to an artist, you know, to getting into the game at this point? Well, you know, you hear so many people say, you know, the music business has changed, it's gotten worse, it's terrible, it ain't what it used to be. And then in many ways, it's probably better than it's ever been. And the reason I say that is because you can do your thing your way, but there are restrictions. So, and then there, of course, there's the, you know, you can flip that and say, you know, that, that you're unrestricted because of the internet. The problem, the challenge with the internet is that there's just so much stuff, content out there that you have to find a way to, you know, to find it and then monetize it. Mm-hmm. But as an artist, when you tell when you ask somebody, you know, well, you want to be in the in this business, how, what's the what's the best thing you can do? Well, for me to start off with is be talented, <laughs> a very talented, and be knowledgeable about the process. Because if you let other people represent you, they're probably going to take advantage of you. If you don't know what you're doing, what you're selling, what your what your product is and how you can market it. You know, there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of abuse. All right. Somebody takes your copyright and uses it and you don't even know it's being exploited and you're not getting compensated for that. <laughs> but there's so many streams of ways to to get out there it is the question is how do you protect what is yours okay and that's a question that i wish i could answer because if i can answer <laughs> how you really protect it i could be very that could be a very lucrative opportunity for me for sure well i, I think uh the best way to protect it you know uh prince was one of the four forefathers and uh, leading that charge uh, like you said you know as an artist you need to know what you are signing or what you are into and Prince was out there protecting his intellectual property uh, a lot of people get caught up in the hype and having their song on the radio but don't know where else that song is going to be used or who else is claiming ownership to it you need to know I would things. totally totally agree with you but you got it when you use an example as Prince Prince had built a brand built a successful career. So it had something that was desirable. Um, now, as a new artist with, that nobody knows, how do you protect what you have? Mm-hmm. When nobody knows it, nobody knows that they, they should want it. So, it, it, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's just, it, there's just a lot of ways to look at this. The first thing any new artist should do is, you know, if you're going to be, um, or you're going to seek success, you got to seek success, you know, where you, where you are. You know, if you're, if you're coming up in Minneapolis, you should be the hottest thing in Minneapolis. You know, don't, don't, don't call out to L.A. and say, I got a song and let's go make this happen, and you haven't made it happen where you are amongst your friends and family. So you start there. You build locally, and then you branch. Agreed. All right. You know, so it's it, there are challenges to this. I, I you know I I just think that it's it can be a very exciting time for a talented artist because you can work your art. You know, you can be as creative as you want to be, and I think we should we should always stop uh, 
you know, with the with the labels and the and the categories and whatnot, that that stifles us. Definitely agreed. Do you think it's a lack yeah. of uh, playing live that is uh, stifling the process? Um, no, but I think playing live should be uh, should be pursued much more. Performance is is you know that's really what where we are today because again record sales don't really factor in heavily into uh, a plan by which you're going to get rich because you can't really track it now you know anybody can take your music put it up on the net and and you you you're spending all your time chasing taking it down true. Uh, you know, and at some point in time, when you're new, you you want that exposure, right? So, so the ability to, to take um, uh, your intellectual content and to use it as the conduit for you to get uh, compensated for your performance—that's really the model everybody's following now. Yeah, it's kind of like and you, it makes sense. You, you want now the next the next. The next development in all this is probably what Prince showed us about what ten years ago when he had a concert. You come to the concert and the album is a part of the ticket price. Part of the ticket sale, yeah. Yes, that's the next step to this, as I see it. Well, like you said, going back to uh, Frankie Beverly and Mays, uh, they were here. Uh, my client promoted their show up here at Thunder Valley, and it sold out. And if a lot of you know legacy acts would use that same premise and mm-hmm. give it away with their concert tickets, that could put a whole new spin on the way Billboard charts are going to look. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know rather than trying to go put a record out, uh, not receiving any kind of support on it, there's no promotional uh, uh, budgets attached to get it out there. Uh, there's no promotional dollars to make sure that it's played at radio, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then there's no record sales. And then, you know, a distributor is not excited about it, not selling. When you can give away or at least uh, uh, distribute it, that to, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 10,000, 5,000, whatever people show up at your event per night and use that as, uh, you know, your means of distribution. Right. That's, that makes sense to me. That would definitely be And then you're, so, you're, you're satisfying your client base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin, so, I got two, two questions, uh, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. So, uh, two, okay. two questions. I want to also get your opinion again on where you think, uh, where you could see radio going let's say in the next five years and then hold on well, one, one second one okay. second for you. and then off of that we'll, we'll go out tell us about the urban buzz right okay okay very good very good radio again because it's you know corporate owned and uh uh traded on the stock exchange where you have to uh, reach a uh a quarterly number in order to maintain your value and all of that kind of stuff makes it very difficult to be creative at. You know, it's, you have to think about how people use radio. And really it's, it's a, a a commuting tool first and foremost. Mm. All right. It, it helps you get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. 
It's something that's ingrained in you. You know, for the most part, you know, you get in the car, you might turn on the radio. Right. You don't walk in the house and turn on a radio. Right. You know, but now you've got this device that everybody carries that they can have access to all types of entertainment. And radio should be a part of that mix more so than it is. But radio stopped, in my opinion, especially when we're talking about urban radio, is giving the consumer what they wanted hmm. or what they want. And if, even if they don't know what they want, give them something exciting to listen to. Too much talk, too many commercials, too much repetition, not enough creativity, not enough personality. They, they, they kill themselves. Wow. You know, we, we have an opportunity and an obligation as broadcasters to try to, to entertain, but also we need to be trying to educate. Because hmm. we got too many dummies out here, young <laughs> dummies. You know, we need Very to tell true. them, you know, how to, uh, you know, to how to learn, where they can find jobs, where they can find health care, you know, how to improve their lives how to keep their money, all of those kind of things should be incorporated into what we do, for, you know, for, in, in a free service. You know, because that's really where, where, where radio has an advantage is free to a consumer. Mm -hmm. Now, you want me to, you know, now when we get into pay service, then I should be expected a lot more than I get for what I'm paying for. Hmm. And I'm just not seeing that. So I, the future of radio is is challenging. I don't see I don't see iHeartRadio being in the terrestrial radio business in ten years. Where do you see it? Remember, it was called Clear Channel Radio. Right. Then they changed the name to iHeartMedia, and iHeartMedia is an internet-based uh, a service. Mm-hmm. So if I have programming, if I have programming, if I have Ryan Seacrest and I have Steve Harvey and I have all these different shows, I don't need terrestrial radio to get it to you. That's now true. I'm distributing this product through the internet. Mm -hmm. I don't need a I don't need a sixty people at a radio station to deliver that product to you. Hmm. See what I'm saying? So if you think about it like that. Do I really need to have this antenna, this equipment, this liability, this expense? Right, right. Right. Are you so I don't see them in this business. Now, that could mean an opportunity for minorities. Hmm. Because still we you know, have a tendency to still like that medium. Mm -hmm. But we got to do a lot better because we're not bringing young people into this. Okay. I mean, you know, you find an eighteen-year-old and you ask them, if, "Are they listening to the radio?" <laughs> yeah. Most of them are going to tell you no. So, if you're not growing the business, then where's the business? You know, how does how does the business grow? Yeah, I, I see. Definitely, I don't listen. I listen to local talk radio sometimes, but I find that I am more aware of things like the Breakfast Club, which as is a radio thing, but I obviously don't get that signal here in Seattle, but I know of them from the internet. You know, I watch all their interviews mm -hmm. on YouTube and they're very influential for me on that 
but I'm very much aware of them. But yeah, I mean, they've taken that and put it onto another medium and probably mm-hmm. and gotten to me where they would never would have gotten to me otherwise. So I can see a lot right. of that. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And like you, you listen to those podcasts and those, uh, uh, you know, that entertainment on your phone, but do you listen to the radio on your phone? Oh, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. So if you start, you know, thinking that, you know, you, you can get all this entertainment, but inter- but radio is not part of that mix, then you're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And if you get in your car and you connect your car to your radio or you pair your car with your system, you're not probably pairing it for the use of radio. Right. Unless there's something there that, that's for you. And I, I know, I don't know Seattle well, but I know there's no, not much in the way of black radio in Seattle. No, not at all. It's uh, we we still have an AM station. Where I don't listen to it. And then at this mm-hmm. point now, what I find interesting, and it's probably the same around the country, all the music that I used to listen to from the '80s to the '90s, now those are the greatest hit stations. So I can turn on mm-hmm. the AM station and it's just wall to wall hip hop, you know, New Jack Swing, <laughs> and all that right. kind of stuff. And there's no announcers right. really or anything. It's just a constant flow. So that's I'll listen to that at some point because that's my genera- You know, I sort of grew up in that. But uh, right. Yeah, but even that, but even that even that has a short shelf life. Yeah, and they probably change that change that format every. every you know, I mean, it's saying, what I'm saying is that it doesn't. It's not presented in a way in which you makes you want to stay. It makes you get excited for a, a short burst of brief mm-hmm. time. Right. But it's not something that you can stay with. And that's the, that's the, the limits of that format to me. I understood. I, I tell you. We've had hip-hop for a long time and, 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 and whatnot, but these oldie hip-hop stations are so limited in what they're doing. After you've heard uh, the message five times in a week, you don't want to hear it again. That was exactly what I was going to say. I listened to uh, iHeart Radio in San Francisco, right? right there, the 80s mm-hmm. iHeart Radio. And they play literally like, it's like 20 songs that they play. Over mm-hmm. and over again, I I hear Madonna, I hear you know Prince, but I hear I hear When Doves Cry, 1999, Little Red Corvette. Those are three right. songs. And you say to yourself, he's had he has such a catalog. Is this the only song you can play? Right, are these right. five these... songs or three songs or whatever it is, that's all you can play, and it, it it just tends to lend itself to the lowest common denominator. Right. Yeah, I agree. Right. Right. Now, even it, even. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, even listening to an 80s channel, I get tired of listening to it because I hear the same stuff over and over again. The 80s was 10 years, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there was 10 years of music in there. I should be hearing, you know, stuff from all kind of artists, but just like with any other radio station, it's, it's the same stuff over and over again. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a rare radio station that actually goes of the mile. There's a station here, I can't think of the name of it right now, but when you ask about, I think it's KEXP uh, in Seattle. I think, I think it's funded by like Paul Allen of all people. So, I mean, they have a blank check. But they go in how I wish like black radio would be. You know, they'll do, of course, they'll play the David Bowie introspective and play 24 hours straight. But they'll also play Prince, uh, you know, 24 hours straight and go play the rare stuff. They'll play Stevie 
and mix it in with whatever's happening today. But they'll play those songs. I wish I could turn on, you know, our, our quote unquote traditional radio station and hear those songs, too. But it's like we don't it's not the current song, so they won't play it. But mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I get frustrated. I'm like, man, they obviously care about this. It's like they care more about it. But again, maybe they have it's a different budget to different company or whatever it is. But they'll mix it all together. But they're curated to the point where they you could tell they really care. And then they'll have the announcer come on and he'll talk about the record. He's like, I remember when this came out and Prince did this or or, you know, Morris, uh, Morris Day did that. And then they'll jump into you know, uh, Pearl Jam or, or or whatever, you know, but it's it's such, right. a, such a respected sort of a play that they present, which I become a fan well, of. But that's that's real programming, you know, and that's really understanding the needs of an audience, and that's what I think that, that Urban Radio has, has lacked in. You know, they think they know what the audience wants, but I don't think they have a clue as to what the audience wants because they don't entertain the audience. Mm. You know, they, they it's like background music. You know, you you just it's there, but you're not paying any attention to it. Mm. I mean, you know, when you listen to the hip hop station and the turnover on the power rotated song is 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, and if it's if again, if it's a commuter medium, and I live in L.A. traffic all the time. Right. So if I go from here to the airport and I gotta hear Drake five times. <laughs> yeah. Drake got it you on. See what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Then I'm like, you know what? This is why I don't want to hear this. Right, right. Uh, Kevin, tell us about so, the Urban Buzz, if you could, sir. Okay. The Urban Buzz uh, was started in 2002, believe it or not, out of the necessity of having uh, a one stop for for urban information urban music information and entertainment news um, because there was a lot of stuff out there. Really, you know, when it started, we still had, um, you know, the it was the magazine era was still amongst us. So there was all kinds of mags and tip sheets, you know, um, um, Impact Magazine, Gavin was just had just finished. Um, uh, there were just a number of different sources, you know, BRE and whatnot, and, and that you could go to. But because there were a number of different sources, nobody really kind of aggregated all of that into one one place. So we really started under that premise: is that we were going to be a um, industry-driven, industry-focused um, resource for black music news and information. Okay. With the emphasis on, you know, on people you knew, you know, people in the business. So it wasn't consumer uh, focused at all. It was industry focused. And that still is the case today. Now, we probably need um, to look at um, information in general. Um, Certainly in the last couple of years, our politics have uh, come into play. You know, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter kind of thing now seems to be more important. There are certainly a lot of different places you can find information on the Internet and and um, uh, other media right. about what's going on. Is there one place that kind of defines black life? Not really. So we kind of look at the Urban Buzz as really just a black music entertainment life kind of thing. Okay. And we take it from the standpoint that you know the players already. 
So it's not somebody, we're not trying to to tell you who L.A. Reid is. You should know who L.A. Reid is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I got you. Yeah, I'm looking at your so site we, right now. So we've been doing this now for a while. I have a couple of writers, my son being one of them. He just graduated from uh, Hampton University a year ago in um, in communications. He's one of our writers. We have a writer based in Atlanta. Uh, and then we take, you know, uh, contributions from uh, people. You know, you guys have some story you want to tell, and then you, you've, uh, uh, you know, uh, vetted it out well. You, you can place your story, and we'll let you. We we'll allow you to do that kind of stuff. So anybody can can get involved, and we want we encourage people to to uh, to step to us like that. So right. we have what we do is we have a website that's available up twenty four seven, and then each week we also do a um, an industry based um, uh, e tip sheet, and that's really more for the development of new R&B, um, for, for, uh, primarily R&B music that is being worked at radio. So our primary um, user is entertainment executives and radio decision makers. Got it, got it. Okay, and that's theurbanbuzz.com? That's theurbanbuzz.com, T-H-E-U-R-B-A-N-B-U-Z-Z.com. And uh, we, we offer the service for free. And um, we, um, our motto is through advertising. We use advertising, but primarily the advertising comes from uh, the artists or record labels or management companies or things like that. So, got it. I see. uh, I'm looking at it right now. One of the top stories is a story we just talked about on the show about Kimberell. So, yeah, she kind (laughs) of stepped out there. Now, you know, some some people say uh, all. Publicity is good publicity. Yeah. I'm not too sure. Yeah. She kind of put her put her foot in her mouth, and you see it starting to uh, affect her uh, ability to uh, to work. Uh, see that she got her radio show got canceled. Yeah. Her um, she was disinvited from some BMI uh, uh, show showcase or something that was going on in Texas. Mm. And people are kind of looking at her as uh, the pariah. And when you get, you know, somebody as big as Pharrell to, uh, you know, have to take a step back. And in fact, I heard on the inside quietly that if he could take her off that album, he would. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those lessons learned, boy. Yep. I say everything out here. Well, gentlemen, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to speak with y'all today. Thank you for coming on, sir. I really appreciate it. I, I will I will make myself available should you ever want to do this again. All right. And uh, if I can help in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you again, That's sir. Man, we got to wrap this thing up, ladies and gentlemen. Again, please continue to uh, give us your comments. Uh, we want to thank all the listeners for hanging in with us. Uh, for those who are listening to the Prince Podcast, you're listening to this on the Prince Podcast feed. And I'm sure you have downloaded and listened to uh, Purple Rain Minute number one. We put that out. Uh, I'm going to go all the way through one through 25. And then we're going to it's going to be a new show with new hosts. So hang in there. But we're just doing some catch up and we, as we'll relaunch that. Um, with that said, we're just going to get up out of here. Thanks for listening. Peace and be wild. How about that? All right.
Boa.